Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. The former head of the OPCW, Jose Bustani, is today speaking out over a new U.S.-led effort to silence him, 18 years after the U.S. ousted him for standing in the way of the Iraq War. Jose Bustani is a veteran Brazilian diplomat who served as the OPCW's first director general. At the UN Security Council last week, the U.S., Britain, France, and their allies voted to prevent Bustani from speaking. He had come to the U.N. to defend two former OPCW inspectors who challenged a cover-up of their investigation in Syria. These inspectors found evidence that the Syrian government did not commit a chemical weapons attack in the city of Douma in April 2018. Their findings undermined the basis for the bombing of Syria by the U.S., U.K., and France that same month. But the inspector's evidence was suppressed under U.S. government pressure. In voting to block Jose Bustani's testimony, the U.S. and its allies are trying to silence him as well. While they may have succeeded at the U.N., they have not silenced Jose Bustani completely. He recorded his U.N. statement, which we have published at the Gray Zone. At great risk to themselves, they have dared to speak out against possible regular behavior in your organization. And it is without doubt in your, in the organizations, and in the world's interest that you hear them out. If the OPCW is confident in the robustness of its scientific work on Duma and in the integrity of the investigation, then it should have little to fear in hearing out its inspectors. If, however, the claims of evidence suppression, selective use of data, and exclusion of key investigators, among other allegations, are not unfounded, then it's even more imperative that the issue be dealt with openly and urgently. This is also not the first time that Jose Bustani has been targeted for defending the OPCW from U.S. efforts to justify war. In 2002, Jose Bustani was ousted at the OPCW under heavy U.S.-led pressure. At the time, Bustani was trying to bring Iraq into the OPCW, which would have made it much more difficult, if not impossible, for the U.S. to invade. John Bolton, then serving under George W. Bush, personally threatened Bustani. When Bustani refused to resign, the U.S. then threatened the OPCW's funding and pressured member states into voting for his removal. They failed on the first attempt, but pulled it off on a second try even though more states did not vote yes, but rather voted no or abstained. The International Labor Organization later ruled that Bustani's removal was unlawful. And now, 18 years later, Jose Bustani once again finds himself being targeted for trying to defend the OPCW from political compromise. Well, today in a Gray Zone exclusive, Bustani speaks to me about his support for the OPCW whistleblowers, two veteran scientists who he worked with during his tenure as the OPCW's first director general. Bustani also reveals new details of how he was targeted when he stood in the way of the Iraq war, including breaking the news that his office was bugged while he was the OPCW chief. It's a case of history repeating itself, with the world's top superpower using bullying to justify war and trying to silence a veteran diplomat from the global south whose courage and principle stands in the way of another pro-war deception. Jose Bustani, welcome to Pushback. It's an honor to speak to you. Thank you very much for the invitation, Aaron. 
So 18 years after the U.S. engineered your ouster as the first director general of the OPCW because you stood in the way of the Iraq war, you now find yourself entangled in a new OPCW controversy involving the U.S. This time it's about Syria, where OPCW inspectors claim that their investigation was compromised, their evidence was censored, and they were sidelined. You came to the UN Security Council to speak in their defense, but the US, along with Britain, France, and their allies, blocked your testimony, refused to let you speak. Let me just first begin by asking you your response to the UN Security Council vote. I, I, I was surprised. I, I've been, uh, I am very familiar with the United Nations. I was supposed to there for my government uh, for seven years uh, in the 70s and 80s. So I know how it works. I've been uh, following Security Council when I was supposed to New York many times. Um, and uh, I was sort of surprised for, uh, uh, for the, the following reasons. I, I've never seen such a, a veto uh, by, uh, given to the invitation by the chairman of the council to have someone with uh, some experience in, in, the, in, the, in the issue, being the first director general of the PCW to be vetoed by one member state, or at least to, to suggest that a vote be taken uh, in order to allow me or not to take the floor. So I was surprised because I, I believe that I have a contribution, that I had a contribution and fortunately uh, my statement was read by the chairman and uh, uh, they, I think these member states missed the point they believed that I was there to defend Assad, defend Syria. And uh, when uh, my, my purpose was, first and foremost, to defend the OPCW, to defend the achievements of the OPCW. And the OPCW at present, uh, particularly because there are doubts about the F, uh, efficiency and the uh, honesty of the, the way uh, inspections are being carried out. This is what was my intent, it still is. That's why I address my uh, remarks, particularly to the present Director General of the OPCW, Ambassador Fernando Arias, uh, from whom I expect some type of reply, or at least uh, uh, the acceptance to meet with inspectors. But then again, it was very surprising, but things happen. Uh, the world changes and uh, uh, there are new rules uh, 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 in relation to international organizations from the from the beginning of my career. Um, the way they uh, are managed today, uh, the way uh, uh, the main uh, contributors, uh, the major powers, influence the work of uh, of organizations, and I myself was a victim of uh, this new approach. Um, and I believe that I I will be the <laughs> the only uh, uh, example of, of uh, what uh, member states can do to a director general. But we can discuss this later on uh, as uh, we proceed with the questions. But this is my, my first reaction to, to, what, to your question. Well, it was incredible to see not just this vote led by the US, Britain and France to prevent you from speaking, but also to hear the ambassadors from these countries describe you as unqualified and 
not an appropriate briefer. We have no interest in allowing this council to be used for propaganda. Regardless of what Russia has said, the additional briefer that was proposed at the last minute for this afternoon's discussion was removed from the OPCW in 2002, more than a decade before the issue of chemical weapons in Syria came before the council. We would be happy to work with our colleagues on a sincere and deliberate basis to find appropriate briefers to most effectively inform the Security Council in future discussions on this matter. While we agree that the presidency should have space proposed propose briefers, these must be relevant and knowledgeable to the topic under discussion. Unfortunately, this is not the case of one of today's briefers. Mr. Bustani is a distinguished diplomat, but given his departure from the OPCW many years before it considered the Syria chemical weapons file, he is not in a position to provide relevant knowledge or information. And it was just shocking to hear that for many reasons, including that you were the first OPCW's director general. You established the organization and brought in dozens of member states and were highly successful. I want to read you a quote from 2002 from the British writer George Monbiot. And this is just as the U.S. was trying to oust you because you were standing in the way of the Iraq war by trying to facilitate Iraq's entry to the Chemical Weapons Convention and the OPCW. And this is what Monbiot wrote. Jose Bustani has arguably done more in the past five years to promote world peace than anyone else on earth. His inspectors have overseen the destruction of two million chemical weapons and two-thirds of the world's chemical weapons facilities. He has so successfully cajoled reluctant nations that the number of signatories has risen from 87 to 145 in the past five years the fastest growth rate of any multilateral body in recent times. In May 2000, as a tribute to his extraordinary record, Bustani was re-elected unanimously by the member states for a second five-year term, even though he had yet to complete his first one. Last year, so in 2001, then-Secretary of State Colin Powell wrote to him to thank him for his very impressive work. So that was from 2002. Fast forward to 2020, and the picture we are getting from the Western ambassadors is very different, calling you unqualified and not an appropriate briefer. What is your response to that? This is a uh, uh, misunderstanding on their part. First of all, uh, um, the relevance comes uh, uh, from the fact that I was the first director general, that I was there for five years and that I initiated the procedures and the working procedures of the organization. In fact, I'm very proud of the work that I have done. I have established the rules of procedure. I have in many ways created the culture of that organization. I taught the inspectors and the staff whom I met frequently how they should behave in terms of all the requirements of the convention, in particular confidentiality issues, which are very sensitive in an organization of this uh, nature. So uh, yes, I believe that I am relevant because I have an experience. I have something to say about the way an organization should function. Uh, I was very successful during my tenure. Unfortunately, there was a, a development uh, later on, uh, which uh, I can elaborate uh, about uh, later. Uh, and secondly, uh, 
they thought that I was going to take a political stand in relation to the Syrian question. And in fact, what I was trying to do, as I said, it was to defend the work of the OPCW. And through them, request the OPCW, since the request made last year during the, the general conference was not taken into account by the, the present director general. Uh, but to try and sensitize member states that uh, uh, the inspectors, the dual inspectors should be given a chance of uh, explaining uh, presenting the report that they wrote about what happened there. So I, I think it was sort of uncalled for, for these uh, two delegates uh, to take the Sunday too. Another strange thing about these Western states trying to portray you as unqualified or an inappropriate briefer is that these OPCW inspectors involved in the Duma scandal they're so experienced with the OPCW that their tenure actually coincides with your time as the OPCW's first director general, because from what we know of them, both of them have served at the OPCW since the start when you were there. Inspector A, as he's known in OPCW documents, has been identified. His name is Ian Henderson, and he spoke recently at a UN Security Council meeting a week before the one that you were prevented from speaking at. The other inspector, Inspector B, has not been publicly identified. There's also someone referred to as Alex, who you actually heard a briefing from, but Alex's identity has not been identified either. But because these inspectors were there back when you were at the OPCW, did you know them? And if so, what was your impression of them? Absolutely. Absolutely. I know them uh, very, very well. And I uh, then at that time, they were, uh, some of them were the team leaders, as we call uh, the, the ones that uh, lead uh, a group of inspections, of inspectors. Uh, they are extremely competent, uh, uh, all of them. In fact, uh, uh, they always impressed me because they were extremely uh, professional and extremely reliable. One of them in particular, uh, Inspector uh, B, was one that, uh, I assign to a very sensitive area of the OPCW, which is the confidentiality office. I had some difficulties then with that particular office, with the uh, staff that was there, and I needed someone to put some, you know, order there, as someone that I could rely on because of the professionalism and and uh, the information and the reliability in particular. And this is one of the inspectors that we are referring to today. They went to Duma. Uh, Ian Anderson is a well-known name uh, in the OPCW as well. And uh, Alex is also another extremely efficient and competent inspector. So these are people with whom I have worked from the very beginning, whom I trust. And that's what uh, made me accept to come to the fore because uh, I, was, uh, I was allowed uh, uh, by uh, them, and I, I got in touch with one of the particular inspectors uh, who showed me uh, uh, important elements, uh, original documents of, of the inspect inspections that were carried out, and uh, the text of the letter that was addressed to then Director General uh, 
And I was impressed by uh, the relevance, the arguments that were shown. And it did not match the way uh, uh, I remember inspect inspections were carried out during my tenure. So I felt that I should come and give them a hand uh, so that uh, because of their qualifications, they are an asset to the OPCW, or they were. Uh, they should be given a chance of bringing uh, to the Director General uh, the real results of their inspections, since the results were sort of uh, uh, um, uh, manipulated or parts of the, of the report were not uh, uh, given to member states, etc. So I, I believe that I, it was my duty as first director general to come uh, uh, and help the, these inspectors because they are an asset to the PCW. And by helping them bring to the full, to the, the director general, uh, their report, their honest report of what they found out uh, would give the OPCW also a chance of uh, uh, being more and more respected internationally. Unfortunately, for some reason, uh, uh, the mainstream media does not cover this issue, has not covered this issue, except for important sites like yours or um, one or another minor publication. Uh, this question does not appear to be known to the international community. Not a single newspaper that I know of, uh, be it in France, uh, in, in England, in, in the UK, and United States, or nobody, nobody knows that there is such a question going on within the OPCW, and it's a pity, because uh, uh, if they are given the opportunity to set the record straight, I believe that OPCW would 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 win. Would be good for the OPCW to to as I said before, to resurrect as the organization that it should always be, a very reliable and non-politicized organization. This is my point of view. It was reported last year and later on confirmed by Ian Henderson when he spoke to the UN Security Council that a US delegation visited The Hague and met with the Duma inspectors directly very early on in their investigation. This was after the team had submitted their report and had their report doctored and key evidence removed. And just days before a new report, a compromise interim report was issued, the inspectors were told to meet with a US delegation who tried to lobby them to convince them that a chlorine attack had occurred, which is what months later, the OPCW's final report would indeed conclude. Does this strike you as unusual? If this had happened under your watch, if a U.S. delegation had met with a OPCW inspection team and tried to lobby them into concluding something, what would have been your reaction? This would have never happened if I were a director general. The inspectors know themselves that they cannot. They cannot. They are not supposed to meet with delegations on the, on issues like inspections in particular. I don't know how it happened. Maybe they were forced to, or they were led to by, I don't know how it, it in, in practice happened because uh, uh, if I were director general, this would never happen, never. And given that these inspectors are supposed to be protected, supposed to remain anonymous, given that they came face to face with a delegation of US officials, 
do you think that that could have jeopardized these OPCW inspectors' security? Well, not only the U.S., but any state should not be men meddling with the uh, inspectors, in particular during a particular uh, a crisis like the Syrian crisis was. It was, in fact, the first alleged use of chemical weapons in, that I remember the issue in the in the history of the PCW. So, it is a very sensitive issue. Uh, it required the total discretion on the part of the inspectors and the part of delegations on the part of uh, of uh, the direction of, of the OPCW. So um, I felt it very, very uh, uncalled for. Uh, really, it surprised me enormously that such an event took place. I would not have allowed that to happen. There was an OPCW inquiry that was conducted into these inspectors and its results were released earlier this year. Neither inspector was accused of leaking anything to the media, but they did come under heavy criticism. The inquiry was used to portray them as rogue actors with incomplete information. And it also included some identifying information about both the inspectors. It included their years of service, which would have made it pretty easy for people to identify them and figure out who they are. With Ian Henderson, it was already known who he was because his name was on one of the first leaked reports. But the other inspector, Inspector B, no one had known who he was until this identifying information from the OPCW was said to the public. Do you think that was appropriate for the OPCW to include identifying information about Inspector B? Listen, Aaron, I don't know how the OPCW behaves, uh, OPCW behaves these days, and I hope that he's not in danger, any kind of danger. I don't know how they, they are dealing with such issues. Uh, I, have no, I have no information, particular information, on, on, on how they are being treated as, as, of, recent, as of recent days. Uh, but uh, I, I hope that uh, it would be a loss for the OPCW if such inspectors were, uh, were considered redundant because uh, we are talking about a very serious group of professionals. Uh, so they are an asset to, to the organization. Um, but then I go, uh, I, 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 who am I to interfere with the present uh, direction of the organization? I, uh, the director must know what he's doing. But the fact that this identifying information, Inspector B's exact years of service at the OPCW, the fact that that was included publicly, do you think that was necessary for the OPCW to reveal? Absolutely. Why? What difference does it make? I don't understand why this information was made public, doesn't change anything. What would change was to, to, to hear them, to get together and let them speak. When Ian Henderson testified recently at the UN Security Council, he said that there's been an impenetrable wall of silence inside the OPCW when it comes to weighing the evidence that was suppressed in the Duma investigation, that it's just been impossible for these inspectors to be heard. You mentioned earlier that the media also has not covered this story at all, which has been, for me, 
pretty extraordinary seeing that a case where whistleblowers are claiming that their own investigation was compromised and that the evidence that they found undermined the basis for U.S.-led military strikes on a foreign country, but yet this has not been covered at all. Do you think that if the media covered this story, that that could make a difference in pressuring the OPCW to hear the inspectors and let them air the evidence that was suppressed? I would hope so. I would hope so. Yeah. I would hope so uh, from, from, from my past experience, political experience. It does cause an impact. It has a weight. The main media has a weight, of course. I believe that if the New York Times or uh, one of the British papers, uh, Le Figaro in France or uh, Le Monde, they would uh, take this issue, uh, uh, write about this issue. I think that this would really help the cause for those inspectors. And the OPCW would be more, uh, I hope, uh, morally uh, constrained to, uh, to, uh, to take action in relation to their request. They are not requesting much. <laughs> we want to be heard and to be given a chance uh, to show their own report. And in particular, this, this director now is not the same director that received the, the, the first report. So he's sort of fresh in, in the area. So it would be much easier for him to, uh, to deal with this, this, this request. Yes, as far as we know, the current director general, Fernando Arias, and his predecessor have never met not just with the two dissenting inspectors that we know about, but with the entire Duma team, the investigators who actually went to Syria for the investigation. And on that front, let me ask you, it's been revealed that after the initial report from the OPCW inspectors was censored, that they and the other inspectors were essentially sidelined from the investigation and they were replaced by a core team of people who had never set foot in Duma except for one paramedic, but everybody else was not there. Does that strike you as unusual? Would that have ever happened under your watch? Absolutely not. It would have never happened to me unless there have been uh, there was a, 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 a serious violation of the code of conduct uh, on the part of the inspectors, which fortunately never never happen. So let's talk about the significance of this vote to prevent you from testifying in light of your own history at the OPCW of being targeted by the U.S. for standing in the way of another military campaign, the Iraq War, back in 2002. This vote at the U.N. Security Council, I believe, was the first time that a former head of an international organization like the OPCW has ever been prevented from speaking. And when you were the head of the OPCW, I believe that you were the first official to head an international body like this to be removed during your term in office. And it came even though your tenure had just been renewed for a second term unanimously, you had received wide acclaim, you had brought 
dozens of countries into the chemical weapons convention at a record pace. Colin Powell had written you a glowing letter thanking you for your service. But something changed with the Iraq war as the, as your efforts to bring Iraq into the chemical weapons convention interfered with the Bush administration's plans. Take us back to that period. I uh, I remember when it was given the the organization was received the Nobel Prize in, in 2013. I felt very proud because uh, I remember that the terms of the of, of the prize referred to the work carried out by the OPCW from its very beginning. So I felt included in, in that prize in many ways, although not recognized by, by the then director general. And the funny thing about this, and this uh, in certain ways matches what uh, uh, was uh, suggested by or raised by the, the, the delegate of the UK in Security Council. In 2013, which means nine years after I left UPCW, the only uh, director general that was interviewed in relation to the Nobel Prize by the New York Times, first page was me. So there must be some reason for even the New York Times to come all the way to interview me in Brazil in 2013. Well, well yes, I'm sure a part of that was the fact that you were nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize in 2003. Ironically, one year after you were ousted under U.S. government pressure, and I imagine that that nomination had to do with the same efforts that led the U.S. to try to remove you from office. It brings me back to the question that you raised about Monbiot article. Yes, Monbiot was very generous when we referred to me in those terms. It, yes, it's true that uh, when I when I uh, became director general, uh, and this is part of the the rules of the convention, you need eighty seven members for the convention to enter into force, and then the director general is uh, elected, and then the work starts really for 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 for, for real. Um, of course, one of my main tasks was to transform this organization into a really multilateral international organization. Uh, it's there, it's, it's a requirement by the convention. So I worked a lot. I visited a number of countries in trying to convince them to the importance of this organization. Why? Because this is, and this is what seduced me to accept the, uh, the post of director general. The CWC, the Chemical Weapons Convention is a non-discriminatory convention. It applies to all member states on, on an equal footing, unlike other disarmament conferences like the NPT, for example. So that fascinated me. The Non-Proliferation Treaty, yeah. Uh, to be given a chance to lead an organization and implement a convention that is non-discriminatory. I was very enthusiastic about that, that mission. I was on, on leave of absence for my foreign service uh, and this was a challenge that really made me extremely uh, happy. And I, in fact, yes, I, I, I did manage to get the member states, the number of member, member states up to 146 or something like that <coughs> by the end of uh, uh, my tenure. Um, and uh, yes, uh, under my tenure, uh, 
uh, a lot was done in terms of destruction of chemical weapons, which is one of the three tasks of the organization. The, the first one being the destruction of the chemical arsenals as they were declared that they existed. So uh, destruction of uh, arsenals in Russia, in the United States, in India, in Iran, in South, South Korea, they had all started during my period. Uh, and, this, and, and then the uh, second part was the inspections of chemical industries in general to make sure that uh, no parts of those chemical industry uh, would be used for other purposes than peaceful. Uh, this was, sorry, very sensitive because uh, some countries were very touchy about the way we had to carry our investigations. And we had a number of problems in carrying out those investigations, particularly the US. But then we overcame uh, such difficulties. Uh, I used to call frequently uh, when the team leader would let me know from, from, from uh, the, the inspection site that there were problems, that you're not being allowed to visit the, the facility in its entirety, etc. But we, we, we managed to resolve those questions in the five years that I was there. And the third aspect of uh, the organization, which is the, uh, a very important one, uh, although most of the developed countries don't really pay attention to it, it's the, the one on technical cooperation. What is this program? It's a program that would help developing countries uh, to develop an incipient uh, chemical industry for their own survival. You know, uh, dyeing a tissue to sell the, the product that you use is a precursor of a chemical weapon. A big ballpoint contains the precursor of a chemical weapon. So things like that are very important. And for you to attract those countries to the organization, you had to give them something. You have to send people that were capable of teaching them how to develop safely their small industries so that were very important for their own economic survival. But it was always difficult for me to get the necessary uh, budget for this part of the uh, convention, for this, these programs of uh, uh, international cooperation. Um, but they were very re relevant programs. And this explains why so many countries also joined the convention in such a short period of time, because they saw a chance of getting a support for development of their own industries. Uh, unfortunately, I was, uh, uh, I, I was not able to, uh, uh, to convince uh, some of the states of the most sensible area in the world at that moment, Middle East in particular, uh, because then we had a, a major political question, uh, which was the relationship with Israel and the Arab states. <clears throat> mm. Nevertheless, uh, I managed to get Sudan into the fall. Um, Iran was already a member. And uh, what was very impressive is that not only I, uh, I got Sudan into the fall, but uh, Sudan eventually became the chairman of the council, as Iran also became a chairman of one of the councils. <coughs> so the working atmosphere was, I must say, extremely positive and and friendly and mature during that period. So you have a widely celebrated 
tenure as the OPCW's first director general. Your mandate is renewed unanimously. You are receiving praise from even the U.S. government. When do you notice that things begin to change? Uh, things started uh, falling apart as there was a change of uh, administration in the United States. Uh, uh, although the first, the first message that I got when the administration, uh, the new administration too, uh, 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 took action was uh, the letter that we referred to uh, by Colin Powell. Uh, that was January, uh, the first year of the Bush administration. Um, and he sent me a letter praising the work that I had been carrying out in the organization, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I, I thought, well, things are okay. The new administration is not to go to change the substantially the approach that uh, was very important for me to, to have countries like the United States in particular. Uh, to cooperate, uh, not very easily, but to cooperate with the organization. Um, but then again, things uh, later on started to fall apart. And uh, I then realized that uh, later on uh, in 2001, uh, that the uh, uh, September 11, 9, 11 may have raised an issue uh, there. It took me some time to understand how the Americans would react to that. And later on, it sort of became obvious that uh, uh, they had chosen a particular uh, country uh, uh, to retaliate for that attack. And I was in, in the middle of, that, of this situation. I was working very hard through different channels because this is part of uh, uh, your your job in such an organization to uh, try and bring into the organization, particularly Iraq and Libya, which were uh, very important countries. And they would perhaps open the door for other countries of the region to join in, like Syria, <coughs> Egypt, and others. Um, what happened was, uh, that by uh, the fourth year of my mandate, let me explain something. I was elected in 1997 by acclamation with a four-year mandate. By the end of my uh, third year, middle of my third year, both the Americans and the Russians and others came to me and said, we are very happy with your work. Would you be prepared to accept the second term by the next conference, which was the end of the year? one year before the end of your first mandate. Well, I consulted my government. Uh, I was given an extra period of uh, leave from my foreign service. And I was elected again uh, unanimously uh, before the end of my fourth, of my fourth year, my, my first term for another four years. And the funny thing is that by the end of the fifth year, <laughs> which was the first year of the second term, I was uh, voted out, but uh, uh, this was uh, the funny thing. I had cooperated very discreetly with the United Nations, with ANSCOM, when there was this crisis of uh, going back to Iraq to collect some of the samples that were left there. 
uh, and the uh, Iraqi government would not allow uh, UN inspectors, UNSCOM inspectors, into Baghdad for that uh, uh, very important task. Because some samples of chemical weapons were left behind. Uh, unless the inspectors came from the OPCW, which was very inter interesting because by then I realized that OPCW had made an, a name for itself. So they realized that the way I taught the inspectors and I taught the staff to behave was one that should be completely apolitical, completely loyal to the organization, loyal to the member states that paid their salaries, not the countries of origin. Because this was the, the, the uniqueness of, of the organization. We had 211 inspectors paid by the organization, by the budget of the organization, in which means by all member states. So their loyalty should be to the organization and to member states, not the countries of origin. Um, and I insisted on this. I was always present during the, uh, when an inspector team came back from inspection, I was present myself uh, for the debriefing. <coughs> Even before it was distributed to the different areas of the organization who would evaluate, et cetera, et cetera. And then I would insist on the fact that there should be objectivity and that the inspection should uh, not only be carried out uh, honestly, seriously, with professionalism and with respect for the country that was being visited. And I think that this culture uh, uh, worked. And, and I believe that this, at least the majority of my staff and the inspectors in particular were very uh, reliable uh, during that period. And meanwhile, the U.S. was caught using U.N. weapons inspectors, ANSCOM, to spy on Iraq, which I believe is why Saddam Hussein then became so adamant that the only inspections he would allow would be from the OPCW. Yeah, apparently, the, uh, uh, in his view, uh, uh, ANSCOM inspectors, because they were not part of the organization like ours, they came from different countries. They were on loan for particular inspections. They were not reliable. So uh, because of that, uh, he would not accept, uh, uh, again, UN inspectors. But he would accept, and he did, accepted the four inspectors that I sent uh, from the OPCW under the aegis of uh, UNSCOM, of course. But that indicated, and I, I realized that uh, uh, I was getting very near a moment where I could perhaps uh, seduce those two countries, uh, particularly Iraq, to join us, to come to, to join the OPCW, uh, which happened in November 2001, uh, when I received a message from both uh, Iraq and Libya that they were prepared to join in and I would, that I will be receiving a letter of uh, accession uh, to the convention in the following weeks. Uh, and uh, that meant, of course, the moment you receive a letter of accession, you have 30 days in the organization to launch the first inspection. <coughs> I felt important, such an important development should be uh, brought to the attention of uh, 
member states, in particular, uh, uh, member states, uh, uh, members of Security Council Department, members and others. Uh, but when I brought this to the attention of the American delegation, uh, I was very surprised, very uh, shocked, because uh, uh, their reaction was, uh, who gave you the order to do such a thing? I said, the convention gave me the order. This is part of my mandate according to the convention. I don't need uh, authorization for many member states. I am responsible for making this, this convention totally multilateral, to international, to bring all member states into the fold. Uh, and then I realized that there was something going on and uh, history explains what happened later on. They immediately launched a campaign uh, uh, to get me out of the organization. Rumors started coming to me, staff members uh, would inform me that there was a campaign as many delegations also uh, came to me saying that the Americans were mobilizing a group of states to, to, to get me out of the organization, which they did. They tried uh, using the normal instrument foreseen by the convention, which is the executive council, uh, except that they lost the vote. The executive council of the organization supported me, so I was not voted out by the council. In desperation, what they did was to convene a conference that was never foreseen by the convention. There is a normal early conference of states parties for a number of issues, but they sort of illegally convened a convention, a conference, general conference for the purpose of uh, deciding on the position of the director general. And they succeeded through political pressure, of course, to mobilize uh, a number of, of countries uh, uh, for such a conference that took place just a month after the executive council decided on, on my uh, permanent state uh, uh, as director general. Then there were a number of political issues at that time. Uh, uh, my, the government of Brazil then uh, uh, did not support me as I expected. Uh, in fact, did nothing uh, in, in, in support, uh, which meant that I lost, I lost the vote by abstentions because Latin American countries abstained, African countries abstained, Asian countries abstained. So it was only the Western vote that voted me out, <coughs> except France, France abstained then. So to be clear here, the decision was taken with 48 votes in favor, six against, and 43 abstentions, which means that more people did not vote to remove you than voted to remove you but yet, because of the abstentions, the U.S. effort to oust you still won. Yes. And that was, uh, what could I do? I, I knew that uh, they, they, they wanted me to resign. And I said, no, I cannot resign. I have no reason whatsoever to resign. And they started, you know, uh, their campaign was saying that I, I was managing the organization in 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 an acceptable way, uh, suggesting uh, a, a number of things that never happened. Um, but then, as I was saying, uh, 
uh, I came to realize then that uh, perhaps uh, my bringing Iraq into the fold and launching inspections immediately, pro most probably would be, have been generated 2002, uh, that would uh, stand in the way for a, a possible military action by the United States eventually. But although I, I had difficulties in accepting that Iraq would be the choice, <laughs> uh, having nothing to do with bin Laden, etc. But uh, it was later on I realized that uh, it, it, uh, a momentum was created for Iraq to become the target. And it just happened. So in many ways, you know, I am, I, I, my frustration in relation to that particular period of mine is that uh, had this not happened, if the Americans had taken a different stand, we might have avoided the Iraqi war and all the consequences that are still with us 20 years later. We might have avoided that. The dissolution of a, of a country and uh, not the birth of another country uh, to these days from my point of view. Uh, this frustrates me because uh, um, that could have been avoided. So in many, in many ways, uh, uh, I think that uh, what Monbiot had in mind was the fact that, uh, yes, I could have contributed to avoid such a war. And maybe I could. Uh, uh, and I, I wish I could have been given the chance of doing so. It's public knowledge now, and you've talked about the fact that John Bolton was the U.S. official who drove the effort to oust you and even personally threatened you. What did John Bolton say to you? When this question, when I raised the question of Iraq and Libya become, becoming members of the organization, I received the request from Mr. Bolton to come to the Hague to, to have a word with me. And uh, it was a very uh, unfortunate experience. He came to my, my office uh, and he stayed there for 15 minutes or more. and said, I, I'm here to tell you that you have 24 hours to resign. This is what uh, uh, the instruction I got from uh, Vice President Cheney. Um, and uh, this is it. And I said, well, I, I don't see any reason for me to resign. My record uh, is impeccable from my point of view and from the point of view of most delegations, and I don't see why I should resign. And he said, well, this is your call. Uh, you." You know where your kids. We know where, where your kids are, so you have to think theories about that. Which I said, I know my kids know, and I am prepared to whatever comes. And he left. That was it. Did you take that as a physical threat against your children? Well, you can read that sentence in many ways. So I, I read it as a threat. <laughs> you can interpret it in many ways. My kids lived, two of them, in New York and one in London. So uh, I, 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 I did not expect him to mention that fact because uh, it wasn't called for. We are discussing my position in the OPCW, not where my family was. Uh, so it, it, it made me very... Uh, 
worried and sad, I must confess. But then again, fortunately, nothing happened, and I, I was voted out, and the Americans were happy with that. And, so the U.S. first tries to oust you with a vote at the OPCW Executive Council, which just a year prior had voted unanimously to renew your term. They lose this vote. The Executive Council does not go along with the U.S. So then the U.S. tries to bring the vote to the, all the member states of the OPCW, and they also threaten to cut the OPCW's funding, which is huge because U.S. accounts for a major percentage of the OPCW's budget. Yeah, that was that was common on the part of the Americans uh, and other countries to flatten the budget. The uh, it's interesting to to uh, point out that uh, uh, the one of the Western countries that was extremely helpful always has always been extremely helpful uh, in terms of uh, helping me manage the organization. Uh, helped me with the budget, in particular with the budget for developing countries, what was the UK. Mm. <laughs> so my relationship with UK delegation was perfect. And I cannot forget the embarrassment of the UK ambassador when he came to me saying that uh, he was under severe instructions to vote against me because our relationship had been extremely productive. Um, and that's critical because the UK goes on to become the key US ally for the invasion of Iraq. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. the ambassador told yeah, you personally. Ironically, ironically, after one year uh, with no position in my government, the new president of Brazil then uh, sent me as ambassador to London. <laughs> so Lula sent you to the UK, but the UK ambassador during this attempt to oust you at the OPCW, he apologizes to you for the fact that his government is refusing to stand up to the U.S. and is going along with their attempt to oust you. Absolutely, because we had contacts every week. Now, uh, uh, it, it was the, uh, the most fluid relationship that I had among the Western countries was with the, with the U.K. and France. Of course, with other countries, it was much easier with the Chinese, the Japanese, and the Russians in particular. Uh, it was very fluid. Hmm. Um, but among the Western countries, uh, the UK was uh, number one. So John Bolton threatened you personally. The US government also threatens the budget of the OPCW in order to oust you. The UK ambassador apologizes to you for not standing up to the US. Was there anything else going on during this period that was suspicious? You know, I monitored things very closely when I was director general, as I said. I was present everywhere in the building. Everywhere in that particular building. Uh, and I learned many things during that period. And just to give a, a funny example to show how, how things can happen in such a, a, a system. Uh, when I was uh, made director general in 97, uh, there was already a PrepCon, a preparatory commission, uh, uh, launching the basis of what would become the future OPCW with a, a small staff, etc. And that was the period when the building for the, for the seizure of the OPCW was being uh, constructed. 
so when I became director general, I came to The Hague. Uh, the building was almost ready. So after one year, I think, we moved to the main uh, um, OPCW building. So I never really followed what was uh, the way it was conceived, the way it was organized, etc. It was okay, apparently, from the point of view of the work of the organization, the way it was uh, imagined and designed by the architect, uh, it was uh, okay. Uh, that said, uh, after my third year as director general, I started to identify some leaks uh, that would come out of some of my discussions with staff members, some of my phone calls, and I, there was one particular uh, example that made me uh, worry about that situation. Uh, I then decided to, over the weekend, to send for someone outside the organization, uh, someone I could trust, uh, someone who was uh, working in Europe, uh, an expert in security issues. I sent for him to come to the OPCW on a Saturday. The organization was uh, closed, of course, uh, to come and check what was going on in my office because there were some leaks that I <laughs> apparently were going on and I couldn't uh, uh, realize what was what was happening in fact. And this person came to the PCW and uh, the fact was that the wall behind my desk, the wall behind the desk of the director general was full of uh, equipment, listening equipment. He broke the whole wall and removed everything. And there were bugs, the drawer of my desk, phone, I was shocked, I must say, I, but he did it immediately. It took him the whole of Saturday, half of the Sunday, and he took it, removed everything. And nobody realized except me and my driver. Um, on Monday, when people came to my uh, office, they were shocked with the way the wall was, it was a big hole. So you were being spied on? I was. And the interesting thing, I never said that before, is that I had then uh, a, a, an office, uh, a person that was the head of the security of the organization. He used to be an American. Uh, and he had a large office full of equipment. Uh, I, I called him uh, the Monday after that happened. I called him to my office uh, to check with him. How come he didn't know? He was in charge of security of the building. How come he didn't know that there was such uh, a banging uh, equipment behind me? Uh, and uh, he wasn't there. And I was told he was traveling to Germany. And I asked him, uh, who, who allowed him to go to Germany? I am, I am his direct boss. He was... He, he was my subordinate, direct, directly subordinate to me. Uh, nobody could say anything. Uh, 
So I said, uh, as soon as he returns, tell him that I want to have a word with him. This was the Monday. You will not believe that, Aaron, but on Tuesday, uh, as I get to the OPCW, I am told that I should go up to the uh, head of security office. Uh, and when I got there, the office was empty. And this person disappeared and never showed up again. Never showed up again. So this U.S. official who was the head of security at the OPCW, or he's an American citizen, he vanishes after bugs are discovered in your office. Did you ever find out who he was working for? I don't know. I don't know. I know you have to make your own conclusions on that. The, the, the coincidence is it happened as I was finding out about equipment. I call him on Monday, he disappears. He's not there. On Tuesday, he disappears. And all the equipment of the UPCW disappears. The office, which is a huge office, was totally empty. And I never got any explanation on the part of any delegation. And I did raise this with a number of them. And what year was this again? I think this was 2001. So this was under George W. Bush then? Yeah. And all this is coinciding with your efforts to bring Iraq into the Chemical Weapons Convention and the increased hostility you faced from the U.S. government as a result. Yeah, the one question after the other. And at that moment, you know, uh, issues raised during inspections uh, were becoming uh, more frequent and uh, uh, difficulties uh, for the inspectors to carry out their tasks and... Uh, so things were changing. Does this include carrying out inspections inside the US? That's what I'm saying. Things were becoming more difficult for the inspectors. Uh, every single time the uh, inspector group was sent to the UK, uh, to the United States, uh, I got calls and uh, complaints and I had to explain. I had really, it was a, a huge negotiation to be able to get the inspectors uh, finalize the job. Um, but, but anyway, I got, I got along with this uh, problem uh, quite well, I believe, uh, in spite of being stressful. Sometimes it was very stressful. Well, I can imagine that finding out that you are being spied on by your organization's chief of security, who also happens to come from the same country that is threatening your job, because you stand in the way of the Iraq war. I imagine that that was pretty stressful. Yeah. But this is uh, just an example of things that happen in such an organization. So in fact, it's, it's very difficult for a director general, no matter which director general uh, I'm referring to, uh, to become completely independent on an international organization because you have the, the money question, the main contributors, and the main contributors are the US, Japan, etc. So they 
they have they believe that they have a say in the future of the organization. And in fact, uh, the threat that they uh, were making to me was that they would stop paying the budget of the PCW, along with the Japanese, their allies, uh, if I did not resign. So that would be 40% less of the budget of the organization. And I could not risk destroying the organization because of that. Uh, so I had then decided really uh, to go, except that I didn't want to be voted out. I wanted to win this vote and then resign, but not resign uh, for no reason whatsoever. So that's incredible. Even if you had won the vote, even if the U.S. had not managed to oust you, you're saying that you still would have resigned anyway. I would have resigned, of course. Otherwise, they would not pay 40% of the budget of the organization. It would be impossible to, uh, to carry out the work of the organization. It costs an enormous amount of money, uh, inspections of this nature. You cannot imagine. It's very, very expensive. Uh, you, 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 you're dealing with uh, 511 staff members, inspectors and other staff members, and uh, traveling all over the world. and. Uh, it was. It, it is a very expensive uh, uh, organization, as others are, like the IAEA. Um, so uh, I could not risk the future of the OPCW because of that. So I had to take the decision that I would go, but I would like to go <laughs> having won the vote, which never happened. Well, technically, you didn't lose the vote because more states still voted not to remove you than states that voted to remove you, but the U.S. still won out because there were so many abstentions. Yes, this is what happened. And then again, I, I was vindicated by the uh, by the ILO tribunal later on because I decided to. My worry was that I didn't want to become president uh, for other director generals mm. that would be ousted on the whim of a certain member state. So I decided to take my my case to the uh, to bring my case to the International Labour Organization Tribunal, ILO Tribunal, uh, and the decision of the tribunal was that I was really deprived of due process, uh, and the decision was uh, null and void and uh, lacked valid legal basis. Uh, that the organization could only take decisions to elect the, the director general and to extend the mandate, but never to vote out a director general. So I won this. And uh, in my request, it was a huge case that uh, uh, I took a lawyer and said, um, I, 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 I requested for, for uh, uh, how do you say, uh, a compensation. Well, is it true that this money that you were awarded by the International Labor Organization, that you actually donated it back to the OPCW? Um, this was, they didn't know that. I asked for material and moral compensation. And I added to, to the request an affidavit, a sealed affidavit, and was a letter saying to the members of the tribunal, 
whatever you decide about this case, in case you decide that I deserve uh, compensation, financial compensation as in terms of moral damage, I want this money to be returned to the OPCW, to be applied to the program of cooperation with developing countries. That particular program that I told you was always lacking uh, support from, from member states, the rich countries. And this is what happened. <laughs> I won the case. And when they opened the envelope, they found out that the money that had been allocated to me, I was returning it to the OPCW to be applied to the program of tech and cooperation, which it was. So for a certain period of time, the program of, of international cooperation could count on some money that I, uh, I left behind for them. Wow. In your statement to the UN Security Council, the one that the US and its allies blocked you from delivering, you stressed the importance of the egalitarian treatment of member states at the OPCW under your watch. You said this, I took immense pride in the independence, impartiality, and professionalism of the OPCW's inspectors and wider staff in implementing the Chemical Weapons Convention. No state party was to be considered above the rest, and the hallmark of the organization's work was the even-handedness with which all member states were treated, regardless of size, political might, or economic clout. Why was this so important to you? Because it is. <laughs> because I believe that uh, all states are equal, like all uh, uh, human beings are equal. So. Uh, if you join an organization, you have to respect the rights of all states and put them on the same footing. Why treat a state with a particular, uh, in a particular way? I treat, I, 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 I treated the United States as I would treat the Fiji or Kiribati or whoever, uh, only because they are the United States, they should not be given any special treatment. If you do that, it, you demoralize uh, the staff and the inspectors and the organization itself. So I believe that this culture, this approach, this philosophy that I taught them, that I insisted on a daily basis with my staff uh, was very positive for the organization. They got used to this. They got used to the fact that they had to be uh, absolutely uh, loyal to the organization, they have to respect the rules and they have to treat every single state on the, on the same footing. So they learn how to do this. So this was part of their culture. I'm not saying that 100% of them were doing that because I, I didn't, I don't have this, I didn't have this control to this point. But I must say that the large majority of, of the staff members uh, we're, we're doing this, this job uh, very, very honestly. And as I, I told you, I used to visit the organization almost every day. I would leave my office and I would go to the Office of Confidentiality. I would go to the inspectorate. I would go to those who were analyzing. I would go to the uh, communications. I would go everywhere to the administration, etc. I wanted to know in person, one by one of my staff. That, well, that became a sort of a family for me. So I felt responsible for them. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I created a very uh, 
friendly working environment also, uh, which perhaps is one of the reasons those inspectors uh, uh, in question today came to me, because they, they knew me from them. Uh, and, but then again, everyone has its own way of looking at things and uh, I, I'm not competing with any other director general. I just, I'm just explaining the way I see, the way I saw my, my job there. So now that you are caught up in this new OPCW scandal tangentially because the UN Security Council under the pressure of the US, Britain and France voted to block you from delivering some comments on it. I'm just curious your thoughts on the connections between your own ordeal back in 2002 and that of these inspectors today. Both of you are being targeted because you are standing in the way of a justification for a U.S. military campaign. Iraq in 2002, the U.S.-led military strikes on Syria in April 2018 because they bombed Syria based on allegations of a chemical weapons attack, an allegation that the inspectors say, according to the evidence that they found, is without merit, that the evidence they collected actually pointed to this not being the Syrian government that committed a chemical attack, but in fact that this incident was staged on the ground. I'm wondering your thoughts on the connection between the two and whether you felt a certain responsibility to speak out, not just given your own experience having been targeted by the U.S. government, but also because you worked with these inspectors when you were the head of the OPCW. In many ways, there, uh, there are similarities with my uh, the two cases. I was, I was voted out. I was uh, excluded from the OPCW environment because of uh, particular group of states led by one. And in this particular case now, these inspectors are being punished if they are not being relieved from their functions. Uh, also because they were compliant with the convention. I was compliant with the convention and I was ironically voted out because of my uh, compliance. And they are being punished because they comply with the rules of the uh, inspections for alleged use of chemical weapons. So. There is an, it's, it's an equivalent thing for me. So I felt that I should be, solidarity would, would, should prevail. I'd like to help them. Another parallel or through line here is John Bolton. John Bolton, who personally threatened you and drove your ouster at the OPCW because you stood in the way of the Iraq war. Now, uh, fast forward to this current issue, the Syria OPCW scandal. And John Bolton is very much involved once again because it was John Bolton, as he recounts in his recent memoir, who oversaw the U.S. bombing of Syria based on the allegation of a chemical weapons attack in Douma. And a few months later, it was under John Bolton's watch that a U.S. delegation visited the OPCW and tried to pressure the inspectors into reaching a conclusion that justified the basis for the U.S. bombing, that there was a chlorine attack in Douma. And it's John Bolton's first day on the job when he begins overseeing the U.S. government response to the yes. alleged chemical attack yes. in Douma. I, I realize that. <laughs> but this is uh, Mr. Bolton, you know. He's, uh, he's a difficult person. He, he's... I have never met a person like him. It's, uh, 
It's unique. It's a unique style. I wonder if we can say then that there's, in a dark way, that there's been some progress in the fact that whereas John Bolton personally threatened you in 2002 with harm, fast forward to 2018 where, at least as far as we know, when the U.S. delegation visited the OPCW and tried to influence them into reaching a conclusion, as far as we know, there were no threats to anyone's children. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> no, nobody told me anything. Jose Bustani, we are going to wrap. So let me ask you finally, for people who are just learning about this OPCW controversy now, if you could comment on why you think it is so important for these OPCW inspectors to be heard, for their story to be covered, and for the OPCW to let them air the evidence that was suppressed, to let the facts be weighed in a transparent manner. Why this is important, not just for the OPCW, but for the world. First of all, because of the science. First, secondly, because inspectors are competent and they normally do their job uh, very honestly and very seriously, very professionally. And second, because it's important for the uh, uh, OPCW itself. If doubts are being raised in different quarters of the world, persons uh, like you and others, dispexes themselves. Uh, why not allow them to tell the truth? And if, if they are wrong, it should be told to the international community that dispexes were wrong. And if they're right, let's go back, reopen the case and see what went wrong during that particular inspection. As, simply, as simple as that. And that would help the organization. Why maintain this doubt? in the air. Why? What's the use of that? The only reason I can see is that they, they're afraid of the, of the truth, of the real report written by the inspectors. Otherwise, they would not be, uh, uh, they would not be against that. They would not be against that. And I believe that the Director General himself has a very important role to play. He is the Director General. He is the, he has the mandate to listen to the inspectors. He's, he has to listen to the, no, any of the staff members, particularly in cases like that. Why is it that he refused to? He doesn't want to know the truth. Why? I think it would be wonderful for, if I were Director General, I would definitely listen to the inspectors and, and then decide what to do. And in case the they are wrong, let, let the membership know that they were wrong in case they were right, raise the issue again, um, revisit <clears throat> the whole question of these inspections. And that would be wonderful for the organization to show that the organization uh, can, you know, uh, can uh, undo uh, something that was uh, wrongly done. Uh, but uh, as I said, every director general has its own view of the issue and uh, its own way of, uh, of uh, managing the organization. I would have given the inspectors a chance, absolutely. Absolutely. You are a trained classical pianist who has performed all over the world. I'm wondering 
if during those times of stress, when John Bolton was threatening you, when the U.S. was engineering your ouster, because you were standing in the way of a war, whether or not your piano uh, brought you comfort during those times? Absolutely, <laughs> yes. and I had to, and I had to practice uh, after hours, of course, because I was always busy. But from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. <laughs> I was uh, sometimes I was very busy with my piano, <laughs> but I, I performed very in not many countries. I some a number of a few countries only. I didn't have the the, the, yeah, the time to to carry on with a career that's much much more complicated than uh, one can imagine. Um, but then again, now that I'm retired, uh, uh, incredibly, <laughs> I only performed once last year with orchestra. That's all I did. Mm. Uh, retirement is difficult. <laughs> it's very tiresome. <laughs> well, Mr. Bustani, I really appreciate your time. I think the fact that you are speaking out and the fact that the U.S. and its allies were so committed to preventing you from being heard. I think that speaks volumes and I hope that it will make a difference in finally lifting the curtain of silence that has surrounded this critical story. I hope so. And thank you very much for your program uh, last week where you showed my statement to, to the Security Council. Uh, and I hope this, this would little by little you know, reach the mainstream press. Uh, they could help the, the, the OPCW and the inspectors. They could do something. I hope uh, George Mondiot comes again and writes something about this. Well, it's funny. He had many stories about you back in 2002, defending you and praising you for your efforts saying that you had done more for global peace than arguably anybody else on earth. But he's one of many people who have been silent now on this OPCW story. And given the gravity of this issue, inspectors at the OPCW saying that their investigation was compromised under U.S. government pressure. And given the fact that someone like yourself, the OPCW's first director general, is not only speaking out, but having his testimony blocked by the same states, the U.S., Britain, and France, that bombed Syria based on the allegations that these inspectors' findings challenged, I hope that that will finally break the sound barrier. Mm -hmm. So do I. <clears throat> Thank you, then. Thank you very much for this occasion. Jose Bustani, veteran diplomat, the OPCW's first director general. Thank you very much. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye.